Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. If you buy something, even if it's your worst deal, you'll learn so much from it that you'll be on your path to doing better in the future and success. And so I think that's important. I've heard that from some of my friends that have education platforms. These people pay all this money, they go to all these conferences, they go to these programs, and then 9 out of 10 of them will still never make that first stop. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best Ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and today I'm joined by Bruce Frazier. Bruce is joining us from Dallas, Texas. He's the managing partner at Elkhorn Capital Partners, which is a real estate private equity firm that focuses on distressed property situations. Their current real estate portfolio consists of around 2,000 multifamily units as the sole general partner. Bruce is also a former hedge fund manager who still oversees roughly $400 million in public markets. Bruce, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Sure, Sloco. Thanks for having me. Background-wise, I'm an investor. I was wired that way when I came, but I just look at the world to try to figure out what I think is happening and, and deploy capital accordingly. But I, I did run a hedge fund for about a decade. It was what's called absolute return strategy, managed to make a steady return no matter what, and actually did that. So great financial crisis came and we were still at our all-time highs, had minimal drawdowns. And at that point, I had a lot of people reaching out to us saying, what else are you doing with your own money? We'd be interested in doing things with you. So I'd been investing in real estate for a while with one business partner. And based on the research I was doing in the hedge fund world, felt like it was time to sell. And so we sold all of our investment assets in 2007. I formed Elkhorn in 2010 when I felt it was time to get back in the water. And if you'll recall, 10 and 11 banks still weren't lending and they were really taking some huge losses and trying to figure out their own portfolios. So everything we did at that point in time was really cash. We were doing some hard money lending. We were buying some smaller assets, all kinds of interesting things, but it went well. Fast forward a couple of years, partners had made some good money. Banks were lending again. So we really honed in on multifamily at that point in time. We didn't like the, the transactional nature of those other things. You're constantly having to turn up your money, whereas multifamily, you can own it for a longer term and make it work. But over the years, we developed a specialty in distress situation acquisitions, as you mentioned, 
that's basically where we buy assets that are non-performing. They either have poor ownership structure or poor management, something of that nature, low occupancy, property needs money to turn it around, something like that. So we've purchased a number of foreclosures, either directly from regional banks, Freddie Mac. They don't have to be foreclosures though. The brokers in our markets really know us well. They know what we do. They know we do what we say we're going to do and we're well capitalized. And so they'll see a situation and they call us and say, see if this fits your box and we'll take a look. And if we can help that situation feel like it's prudent to jump in and turn it around, then we will. And in some cases, we bought like four during the COVID lockdowns. We would have done more if banks had been easier to get funding from at the time. But one of them, we felt like we we're just doing the city a favor because it was such poor distress that it was kind of the armpit of the neighborhood. And Went in there and turned it around and now it's stabilized and performing well with getting huge rate increases. So our timelines for investment vary depending on the situation. That one, for example, we knew, hey, we want to get in and out. We're going to turn this asset around and probably be in and out in three years. And then there are others that you get in and turn around and really are really easy to own. And some of those we really don't want to let go of. I have some pretty negative inflation views based on research I've done in the hedge fund world and have for years. And that's why I'm really focused on hard assets. I think that dollars five years from now will buy less than they would today. And so we would want to park those dollars into some hard assets that have inflation hedges for us. That's why we're doing what we do. Bruce, putting my own words on what it is that I just heard you say, you focus or you have focused on operational distress properties that have been poorly managed for whatever reason and getting those turned around. So you're inheriting some pretty high vacancy rates, likely a lot of deferred capital expenditures. Why is it that that became your specialty? Is it because of the higher returns available through executing on more difficult business plans? To a great extent, yes. I've always liked to fix things and I'll look at a situation and think, hey, I think I can do that better. Now, I'm not egocentric enough to believe that I can do all situations better. That's not what I'm saying. But I look at so many of the transactions that are done today at these low cap rates. They're buying these stabilized deals, low cap rates, traditional value add. They go into them and they're thinking they're going to put 10, 20 grand a door, maybe adding amenities or backsplashes or stainless and hoping to push rents up. To me, that seems high risk because I think that works when times are good, but when the economy slows or times aren't as good, I think that's much higher risk to assume that. And so for us, we're buying broken stuff. And if we fix anything at all, it's going to be worth more. Now, it is a lot of work. That first year or two is just a tremendous amount of work versus compared to buying an asset that's already running well. But it's a fairly certain path to money. How did we get here? Yeah, a lot of it is returns. I will say when you buy something like that, you buy something that's 25% occupied and you make it 95% occupied, you've created a lot of value there for yourself and for your partners. And it's not unusual for us to, I don't want to talk about returns, I guess, but there's certainly in excess of the teens per year that on some of these deals, if we get in and out and do it really quickly, we had an asset that we bought from Freddie Mac December of 21. It was doing 45K in revenue a month. That asset this month did 160K in revenue. So you can imagine that's really moving the dollar valuation. Yeah, for sure. What markets do you operate in? We do a lot of quantitative research on where we want to be. That's based on a lot of things that some of your listeners are already probably focused on. Population growth, wage growth, job growth, unemployment rates, how they responded during COVID, how they responded coming out of COVID, the size of the MSA, the business-friendly 
nature of the environment. So you're not going to find us on the coasts. We're generally going to be in the South and Midwest. Our concentration right now is we're very actually heavy in Oklahoma. We're based in Dallas, Texas, but we used to own in DFW. And then we owned in West Texas for a while. But West Texas was just a little bit too small for us. If we go into a market, we want to be able to buy 1,500, 2,000 doors in each market that we're in. And we just gives us a lot of scale, a lot of benefit with vendors. We vertically integrated this year. So we're actually doing our own property management at this point. And that's been a tremendous success. So we want to be able to have a presence on the ground. And I think that helps us also with our broker relationships. They know us. They know the situations to call us for. And that's just been a huge benefit. Yeah, Bruce, my next question was going to be, are you vertically integrated? Because it makes sense with how many moving parts there are in your business plan to try to bring all of that in-house, especially with your scale. I don't want to leave this at simply being a no-brainer, though. Talk us through the highs and the lows of vertically integrating your portfolio, at least in the Oklahoma area. What have been the biggest boons and what have been the biggest challenges? That's a great question because a lot of people, that was their goal from the onset is to vertically integrate and manage the assets themselves. I fought it, honestly. I never wanted to be in the property management business. That's the part of the business where anybody's talking about real estate and saying, oh, I don't want to be in it because I don't want to get the phone call in the middle of the night. Well, that's where those phone calls are derived is in property management. Something bad happened on the property, someone's toilet's backing up, all that stuff. But we had always said our highest and best use was to use third-party management and focus on finding these distress situations so that we could turn them around and make the huge returns for our partners. It was less important for us to focus on property management because yeah, if you're using a good third-party property manager, maybe we could eke out another 1% or 2% a year by doing it ourselves. That really wasn't the reason. It got to the point where we just have horror stories with third-party property managers the most recent one that we used, we were 75% of their business and the person in charge actually didn't have property management experience, nor did she have any experience running a company. And the senior person had left the week after we joined them. So it was just a mess. And in spite of us being almost all of their business, we would tell them XYZ needs to happen. And we would have to discuss that for weeks and it just would never happen. It would never get done. So we actually probably spend less time now managing our properties than we did when we had third-party property management, which is shocking to me. But literally the month that we took over, we took over after the first week of the month has already passed. But before the end of that first month, every one of our properties had higher occupancy. Every one of our properties had higher revenue. And every property in our portfolio right now, I believe, is at its all-time highs. So that is just attributable to the good operational team we have, our asset manager that we have that's overseeing the property management and on all of our managers out there. We've structured comp plans. I see a lot of people, they're just so focused on minimizing expense. They don't pay their people well. Their people aren't motivated. You can have a $20 million asset. Someone's making 50 grand at the property and they're basically the quarterback running things. And if they don't do a good job, then your $20 million assets at risk. So we take a different attitude on it. We want them to do very well, better than they could do anywhere else. The good people. We'll cut bait with the people that don't want to work and they don't want to deliver good results with those that are focused on that. We want them to be very fairly compensated. So we want our managers to be making incentive compensation that makes it such that they can't go replace that job and make the same amount of money. Because the results that they can get for us, as you know, is a multiple fact on valuation and everything else. So it's certainly worth paying the extra thousands of dollars to them to get the results that we need. 
simple stuff. A lot of property management companies don't think about it. They'll bonus them to get to 90% occupancy. Well, that's great, but there's another 10% occupancy there, and that's a very profitable 10%. So we have tiered bonuses where if they're at 90, they get a bonus. If they get 92, they get a bigger bonus. 94, they get a bigger bonus. And guess what? Almost all of our properties are at 98% now, <laughs> whereas before they were running at 90, 91. And so it's just teaching them the business side of things and why it's important and then financially incenting them that if they achieve those results, then they get paid well. Bruce, I have to call you out on something that I just heard you say or a couple of different things that may be in conflict with one another. You didn't want to get into property management because you didn't want to eke out an extra 1% or 2% for your investors. But when you took over management of your assets, they started performing dramatically better. I imagine that part of it being that in the markets where you are, you weren't able to find third-party managers who could manage at the level that you can. But also, it sounds like the returns from vertically integrating property management have been greater than just 1% or 2%. Sorry, that didn't sound like a question, but it was a question. How significant has the change been since you guys took over management in that part of your portfolio? I don't think the comments are conflicting with one another. I did say 1% to 2%, but that's assuming that you have a property management company that's doing a good job. And incrementally, if I put my hands on it, I might could eke out a little bit more or reduce expense a little bit more. For our situation in the markets we were in, we couldn't find competent property management companies that we were happy with working the way we wanted them to work and delivering the results we wanted. They just weren't available at the scale that we needed. There's certainly some good ones I'm aware of in our markets that do a really good job and handle a handful of properties. But when we tried to hand them our entire portfolio, they told us they couldn't handle the scale and execute the same, which I respect a lot. So I think that the impact of going vertical or taking that in-house has really been immense. It can't be understated. It's absolutely not recommended for everybody. If we didn't have the right team in place to oversee it, I think it could be a nightmare. But we do have a great team and we have a good management group. Towards the end of the last third-party manager we used, the last six to nine months, we frankly told them, you're not authorized to hire for us anymore because you do a terrible job at it. So the team that was in place was really largely a group that we had hired already. So that team all came over with us. They're super excited. They like working directly for ownership. It's technically a separate entity and a separate company name, but they know us. They know when we walk on property, they recognize us. They know what we're looking for. And I think they take a pride in their job of knowing because we thank them. Part of it is being super appreciative of the good results and letting them know where we expect there could be some more growth, but just thanking the people for the good job that they're doing goes a long way. That makes a lot of sense. What's been the most difficult part of taking over the management of your properties? I have to think about that a bit. You know, the part that worried me the most was the HR side, because I'm a finance guy. I don't know HR. And I was afraid of any landmine with employees of regulations or rules that we didn't know, didn't violate because we meant to, but violated because we didn't know the rule. So we partnered with a group to handle all the HR and payroll for us. It's a national group. And so that alleviated that concern. And after that, it's really the, the difficulty is just finding people that want to work and want to do a good job. They take pride in their work. And that's a lot harder today than it was a number of years ago. I think all the entitlements that were received during COVID and things like that taught some people just not to work. But there are other people, good people out there that still take pride in their job and like to do a good job. And those are the people we want working for us. And that makes all the difference in the world. But it is tricky to find those people. Bruce, there were some things in your bio that I did not 
read at the beginning. Notes about how you avoid going with your gut and making sure that you have numbers-based and analytics-based decision-making within your organization. I want to ask, you referenced early on that some properties, after you get them turned around, you decide to sell them fairly quickly and some properties you decide to keep. How is it that you make that decision? What are the factors and the variables involved in that? Yeah, kind of two pieces to unpack there. One is the quantitative nature of our discipline investing approach. And then the other is how do we pick what we keep and what we don't? Let me answer that one first. The quick and easy answer is generally when we assess a situation, we'll go in and we'll tell our partners, like I said on the other example, we're in and out in three years or we're in and out in five years. We're not going to change your timeline on that because that's what we committed to our partners. But what I've seen is some of those deals where we thought this is a turnaround, we're going to go in and fix the situation. Once we fixed it, the asset performed so well, we really just don't want to let it go. So we can't do it right now, but in a, I guess a, a looser interest rate environment, we would investigate doing a recap on those, say, take our original partners out if they wanted to participate still, that's fine. But then bring in new partners that just wanted a longer term hold. The early guys might have wanted the quick pop, taken the risk on the turnaround and made really solid returns. And then someone else may love the fact that we already own the property for three or four years. We know exactly how it's going to run and what to expect and just have a cash flow yield off of it. So we try not to change timelines on our partners. The world has thrown a lot at us the last couple of years in multifamily between the COVID lockdowns and the most rapid interest rate increases in history. But again, just using discipline and numbers, we knew that interest rates were at historic lows. We were borrowing, let's say 3%, 3.5% on some of this debt. Well, why wouldn't you lock that in long-term? So we are a very risk-averse shop and we don't want things to impact our business that we can't control. So all of our debt was fixed rate coming into this year. And that's certainly not the case for a lot of people. A lot of people looked at deals and they underwrote them. They didn't really work at the valuations that they were trading at. So they took on floating rate debt, got a little bit cheaper interest rate to make the deal work. And now a lot of those operators and owners are, are in real trouble. Bruce, I'm planning to ask about that, but I want to make sure I understand. Let's see if I can summarize what you were saying. Please correct me if I'm wrong. We're recording in the third quarter of 2023. So whoever is listening to this in hindsight will know that the interest rates have been highly volatile and have approximately doubled depending on your market and your product in the last 18 or so months. Prior to the current moment, with some of your deals, you were able to force enough appreciation that you could effectively buy out your limited partners during that three to five year time horizon by recapitalizing and refinancing the deal and keeping it for your general partnership. Is that what you're saying? We have not done that. We would like to do that so that we still hit their return goal, but the forecast that we made for them so they still hit the return expectation that we had set for them, but would either keep it with our own just general partnership or with a new group of limited partners as well that are willing to take maybe a lower return, but more certain return. That makes sense. But that's going to require lower interest rates to achieve, I think. That also makes sense. Now, you were talking about the financial distress that some owners are experiencing now or they will be experiencing soon with expiring rate caps and 
variable interest rates on their debt in general. Last question before we transition the episode, Bruce. Your focus has been on acquiring properties out of distressed situations. Given the rapid rent growth in most markets outpacing the expense growth that we've seen, where is the distress now and what are the opportunities that you're pursuing? We still have a heavy appetite for acquisitions. A lot of people are worried about the market current environment. I've had a very negative view on inflation for years. All you have to do is you call out the noise by just looking at the numbers. And this is part of our discipline numbers approach. But if you look at the U.S. government debt, they're 32 trillion plus in debt. They're the biggest debtor in the world. And so they're paying more interest than anybody. So them raising interest rates has hurt them more than anybody else. Their expense burden has already more than doubled. It's going to increase further. So they were borrowing money already to pay the original debt service. So they're having to borrow more and more to pay the increasing debt service. And it's just a bit of a debt spiral. So implicitly, they're going to have to debase a currency or cause inflation in order to keep the ball rolling. So we're just betting on them continue to do the same thing they've always done. So we want to put our dollars into hard assets that can protect us against that devaluation of the dollar. To your point on rent growth, our entire portfolio, on average, I think we're seeing 10 to 20% rent growth right now. Part of that may be a function of the type of assets we're buying because they are undermanaged and the rent are below where they should be. Part of it is due to the turnaround and increase in property values that we've created and just making it a nicer place to live. But the distress, a lot of it is because of the floating rate debt that people took out, but not all of it is. Some of it is because they just had a maturing loan. Let's say they took out a two-year, three-year loan. Maybe it was even a fixed rate loan. When they go to refinance that loan, because of the higher interest rates, banks look at what's called a debt service coverage ratio. So the net operating income of the property has to more than cover the debt service, which obviously makes sense. All the different banks have different ratios, but with a higher interest rate, that payment is much larger. The net operating income may be larger too, but that increase in net operating income, it may not fully offset the coverage ratio that's required now. And so someone that took out a loan that's maturing, even if it's fixed rate, they may not be able to refinance and get the full proceeds in order to pay off that original loan. That operator, that general partner then has to either put money in themselves, they have to do a capital call, or they have to sell at a loss. And we're seeing a lot of people face that right now because even the value-add guys that were successful, they went in and bought it. They maybe increased revenue 10 20%. That's not enough to offset the movement in interest rates we've seen when they go to refinance. So the shorter-term notes are a problem. We're already seeing that present itself. The floating rate's a problem. People that have expiring interest rate caps that are having to be reset, these things might have cost forty grand to get into the interest rate cap, and now to reset it might cost a million dollars. It's very rare for an operator to raise an excess of an extra million dollars in a deal just in case. And so those partners are scrambling, trying to figure out how to solve that. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. 
BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Bruce, this is a narrative that we've been either hearing or anticipating for several months now. It sounds like you're actually seeing it play out in the marketplace. What are you seeing? Yes, we are seeing it play out. I think we're still early in it, but we have already seen an increase in deal flow because people know we do distrust. We've had lenders actually reaching out to us, introducing us to situations of some of their existing borrowers where they're not going to extend their loan or they know that it's just not a good situation and they need someone to come in that has the experience and capability and capitalization to help. And so we've been brought into a number of those situations. We're seeing more deals come to market where they may not be to market, but an owner has reached out to a broker to help them try to move the property quickly, whether off market or marketed, because there's this, one of these set maturities coming up. We had a situation that was shown to us just last week or the week before in, in one of our markets, and that was the case. They tried to refinance. They couldn't. It's a tough asset with some problems. So we got the phone call. They have a debt maturity October 31st and had to have somebody that could close by that time. And they knew that we could move quickly. So we looked at the situation, but we weren't comfortable with the end result on the exit that we would get just because we knew we could fix the asset, but then there were still some problems with the immediate area that we couldn't solve because we wouldn't own that area. So we weren't comfortable that we would be able to sell as profitably as we would like to. But we are looking at a lot more situations now, and it's pretty clear that the trouble has started to brew. I think it will continue to increase for a period of time. I think it's going to be rough for the next 12 to 18 months, which creates opportunity. I don't want to come off as a bear. We're very excited, not because people are having problems. I hate that they're in those situations, but we are in a position where we can help solve some of those problems and help our partners benefit from that. That does make sense. Bruce, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. What is the best ever book you recently read? Oh, gosh. The best probably off-grid book that I've read that most people may not have heard of is Creature from Jekyll Island. It's not an enthralling book, but it's intriguing and that it will change the way you think about the world. It talks about the formation of the Federal Reserve, which is not federal and is not a reserve. It was actually created by the bankers at the time, literally J.P. Morgan, not the bank, the person in his cadre. They all got into a very private meeting and decided to form this institute that we call the Federal Reserve. So it changed the way you think about things. It's an interesting read, but it's not a page turner. That's one that I think some of your viewers may not have heard of. This may or may not surprise you, Bruce. It's been a very popular book to talk about for the last about 18 months or so. Yeah, ever since the Federal Reserve forced themselves into prominence, it's been an interesting book to hear people talk about. Bruce, what is your best ever way to give back? I act as a mentor. I am on the associate board at, at a college that, in grad school that I went to. So I help it mentor MBA students, and I've done that for many years. So I also make time available for other operators that reach out to me. And I speak at different conferences and things like that. So people, in some cases, know who I am. And especially recently, I've had a couple reach out to me to say, hey, I'm dealing with a situation. Would you mind giving me some advice? And I make time for those people and try to give them the best advice I can to help guide them through something that they've experienced before. Even though I stay really busy and that time doesn't pay me because I don't have an educational platform or anything like that, but that's how I try to get by. Bruce, on the deals that you've done, properties that Elkhorn has acquired, what is the biggest mistake 
you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? There's so many of them. <laughs> That's the thing, no matter how sophisticated your models are, or how smart your team is, your forecasted models are all just an educated guess. And I think the most prudent thing is just to be cautious, underwrite conservatively, worry about things that could happen that you may not be planning on, like a massive rate spike or something of that nature. And that's kept us out of a lot of trouble and a lot of cycles. And that's why we're positioned now to take advantage of it. I think when other people are having to be forced to look inward at their portfolio, the biggest mistake though, explicitly, gosh, I don't know. Like I said, we love to fix things and we know we have good capabilities. We've gotten better at this, but we've taken on some just beasts of projects. And one of the ones I mentioned that we bought during the COVID lockdowns, it was probably 25% occupied. Not all those were paying, probably had more homeless tenants in it than paying residents. And we knew we could fix it. The price had dropped sufficiently where we felt we could make a good return and we jumped into that. <laughs> I wondered for a couple of years whether that was the right decision to make or not, but that property is not performing very well. But there were definitely days that I wondered, gosh, did we bite off too much? This is a tough project. And I think that the lessons learned from this is we're not going to be able to solve all problems, even if we know we can solve them. We have to pick and choose and wait to those based on expected returns and, and probabilities of outcome. But that one, we, you were jumping in the deep end and we actually had a professional photographer come take pictures of it before we started work because we knew people would look at us after we bought that asset and say, gosh, those guys were idiots. That property was terrible. Why would they have bought it? And if we failed, of course, everybody would just assume that. But if we were successful, then we wanted to document it, the work that we had gone to. So I guess that's an example. What is your best ever advice? I think there were probably two pieces. One, when I first started thinking about getting heavier into real estate and multifamily, I went to a conference. This has been many years ago, but I had the opportunity. Generally, those conferences have breakouts where you have lunch and you can just sit with whoever you want. And I, I sat next to someone that was a, an older individual who'd been investing in multifamily for many years. And I asked him the same question. I said, what was some advice you would give somebody just starting off? And he looked at me and said, just buy something, anything. He said, most people will never make that move. But if you buy something, even if it's your worst deal, you'll learn so much from it that you'll be on your path to doing better in the future and success. And so I think that's important. I've heard that from some of my friends that have education platforms. These people pay all this money. They go to all these conferences. They go to these programs. And then nine out of 10 of them will still never make that first step. And it's just making that first step and actually getting a deal under your belt, learning from it. And then they say the law of the first deal, that that second deal will be right behind it just because you realize, okay, I, I can do this. And yeah, I messed this up or that up, but I can fix that and do it better next time. So that'd be one piece. And the other is just knowing why you're investing, not just because you think you're going to make money. For us, it's a macro thesis on why we want to own real estate. And that helps you stay focused during all these periods when some people are questioning whether it's a good thing to be investing in or not. We absolutely know it's a good thing to be investing in. Real estate is a great investment long-term, whether there's inflation or not, but you layer in the inflation and the debasement possibilities that we see coming, it's a no-brainer. And then just keeping life balance, making sure that, again, you're doing it not for the money, but to help your family and help them be more secure. Last question, where can people get in touch with you? I don't have a big social footprint. I'm not posting what I had for breakfast or, or where I'm traveling day to day, but I do post on LinkedIn periodically, usually once every month or two, something like that. But it's not going to be about us or our deals. It's going to be about macroeconomic things that we're seeing. And just really trying to, I hate to use the term, but dumbing it down and simplifying all the data so that people can really get to the heart of the message of what's going on and how that could be walked forward in the future. And so reach out to me on LinkedIn, Bruce Fraser, F-R-A-S-E-R, or via our website, elkhornpartners.com. We have a link there where you can 
log in and go into our portal, see some of the deals we've done. And if you want to be notified of future deals, you can register there and you'll be notified of future deals. Those links are in the show notes. Bruce, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this episode, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend you know we can add value to through our conversation today. Thank you and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.